Hey, we're uh, second week in a series called Jesus is Greater Than. Last week, we examined the religion, the belief system, the cult called Mormonism. And we looked at how, how it uh, is different or differs from what the scriptures teach and what Jesus taught. And uh, we saw that Jesus <clears throat> uh, is greater than Mormonism, that Mormonism is not true. It's not the truth. And we talked about how truth matters and that sometimes we just want to get along with people. And I know that we have difference. We go, oh, there's differences of views, but nobody can really understand all that. Nobody can really know what's going on and what the truth is. But the fact is that, that we can and we have a responsibility. I was just chatting with somebody this morning about how as a, as a movement, Protestant movement, whatever you want to call us, there's an emphasis on know your Bible, read your Bible. You have access to it and you have the responsibility and the privilege to study and to know what the word of God says and to figure out and sort out some of these things that might be a little more complex. And I understand that. But the truth is we have that opportunity. We are called the Berean Fellowship and the Bereans in the New Testament, the book of Acts, were known for searching the scriptures. They would be taught something. They would go back and check it out for themselves. And so I want to encourage you that that's who we are. And we have this privilege and responsibility. You may talk to someone who is a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness that we're going to look at today. And they may not really know what they believe, right? And they may go, I don't really know what the differences are. I just belong to this church. And that certainly is the case. My prayer is that would not be true of any of us. That someone wouldn't come to us and say, hey, what do you believe? And, you know, what is, what do you, where do you stand as a church? And what's a Berean? That we'd be able to answer that. You know, we'd be able to know with a little bit, uh, give, a, give a description, explanation. So take this opportunity. We're kind of in this series. It's a little more, man, we're digging in a little deeper, giving some more details and information. It might not be the most exciting content, but it's important. You know, uh, Rabbi Zacharias, who just passed away, was a great um, <clears throat> apologist for the Christian faith. He traveled the world. Um, he did a lot of evangelism and a lot of defending the Christian faith. He said, how can we expect to lead someone else to Jesus who belongs to another religion or belief system if we don't know anything about it. And so the, part of the reason I'm doing this, we're only going to hit on uh, three or four different religions or cults or belief systems, but I want you guys to get engaged in this, to know and to begin to think, hey, what do the people around me believe? And I picked Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, because we probably know someone who might belong to those uh, churches. At least I have, as I've grown up in this country, they both are American religions and they started here in America during the days when a lot of denominations were starting and there was just a lot of movement and change and um and things were happening at a spiritual level and so um and so this jehovah's witness is one of those that we'll look at today you know from the very beginning after jesus ascended back to heaven there were individuals taking the teachings of jesus the life of jesus the movement of the church and going off in different directions. The Gospel of John, written late, probably in the late 90s, um, after Jesus, A.D., probably 95 A.D., was written in part to deal with or counteract a belief and a teaching that had risen up in their day called Gnosticism. You may have heard of Gnosticism. Gnosticism means secret knowledge. And so there was a belief and a teaching that uh, Gnosticism had a couple of key points. One was that the spirit is good, the flesh is evil. And so they actually didn't believe Jesus had a physical body, that he just appeared to have one. And so um, already 
in the early church, this was getting dealt with. And so we should be prepared for this, understand it's going to happen, and certainly continues to happen today. Once the devil was walking along with one of his cohorts and they saw a man ahead of them pick up something shiny. What did he find? Asked the cohort. A piece of the truth, the devil replied. Well, doesn't it bother you that he found a piece of the truth, the cohort asked? No, said the devil. I will see to it that he makes a religion out of it. Truth taken out of context. Twisted is the basis for many false religions, and certainly Jehovah's Witness fits into that. The history of the Jehovah's Witness movement, church, is that it is an American religion. Um, It started out of what was called the Bible student movement in the 1870s. Bible student movement sounds great. Sounds like a group of people, students, that are studying the scriptures. And they certainly were to a certain degree. But that study was influenced by a guy named Charles Taze or Taz Russell. And he was this key figure that began to write and think. And, and he had a movement of people following him. And they were doing Bible studies. And his teaching was directing them. And so he also created what was known as the Zion Watchtower Society. And that still exists today in a form. It was initially an arm to publish his writings, and he was published. Uh, He was published in a couple thousand newspapers and and, uh, magazines around the country. He was considered, he was known as Pastor Russell, and he was considered to be an authoritative teacher and someone that knew what he was talking about. And so he was respected in his day. Today, Jehovah's Witnesses kind of seem like this, uh, you know, um, not in the mainstream, right? And and yet, um, there was a day when he was. When he, he incorporated this, this um, society in 1884, due in large part to the fact that a lot of contributions were coming in. And so he, uh, he incorporated it as a nonprofit. And if you gave $10 or more a year, you got a share, which allowed you some voting rights in the society. Although Russell said he was going to maintain 51%, so the voting wouldn't really have any effect. But um, this was the way in which he published his writings and teachings and tracts and all the stuff that he, um, that he got out. By the time he was 20, Russell had left both Presbyterianism and Congregationalism because he could not reconcile the idea of eternal hell with God's mercy. So he had struggle with something in the Scriptures, something the Bible taught and that the churches that he was a part of taught. Couldn't reconcile it, didn't like it. And so he had drifted into skepticism. He was kind of floating along, and uh, he had a chance encounter with someone who was a part of the Adventist movement. And in those days, the Adventist movement was on the rise. This was a group of people, um, kind of started, founded by a guy named William Miller. He was the originator of it, but the Adventists were a group of people that believed that the physical kingdom of God was going to be established in the world, that it would be a governmental system that was going to be established on the earth in their time, and they began to predict when this would happen in relation, association with the return of Jesus. And so they began to get into predicting when things would happen, when the world would change, um, and when the kingdom of God would be established. And some of that sounds really good. Some of it sounds really good. It sounds like it might be close, you know, to being, to lining up. But the truth is, they were very far off. And the longer and further Jehovah's Witness has gone, the further off they have gotten. But um, Russell had some tutors that helped him master the use of the Greek and Hebrew dictionaries to study the Bible. And he formed his first Bible classes in 1872. Um, Russell, uh, Russell published 
uh, a number of books, one called Three Worlds, one called The Harvest of the World in 1877. And this began to get his name out there and his ideas out there were just growing. Um, He based his writings and his understanding on a complex, uh, a series of complex biblical calculations. He preached that in 1877 that Christ's invisible return had occurred in 1874. And this established that the kingdom of God was in operation and function, that Jesus was uh, ruling over that. It was, it was um, coming to be on the earth. And so it was an invisible return, second coming. That it, Again, it had occurred in 1874. The end of the Gentile times had come and the beginning of a golden age that would come in 1914. And get this, it would be followed by a war between capitalism and communism or socialism. It's kind of interesting. After which God's kingdom by Christ would rule the earth. Russell dedicated his life and fortune to preaching Christ's millennial kingdom. In 1879, he started a Bible journal, which is now called the Watchtower and continues to exist. It's this organization that's incorporated, this arm, operates out of New York, and uh, in 1884, he founded the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. Um, he was extensively published. Uh, he reached um, a circulation of 16 million copies of this uh, periodical, 35 languages, and 2,000 newspapers published his weekly sermons. He was president of the society until his death. So this is how he got his message out there. He believed firmly that what he was saying was the truth. You know, <clears throat> I used to think that people that started uh, a belief system, a religion, whatever, that was an error, that they did it intentionally to mislead people, right? They were were intentionally thinking, I'm going to try to mislead people. And some of them probably have. But there's also some people that sincerely believe what they're teaching. And they're going after it with a sincerity, and yet they're just simply wrong, according to the Scriptures. So Russell became convinced that he could predict the end of the world and the establishment of the Millennial Kingdom which the end of the world, the return of Christ, that's in Scripture. The millennial kingdom is in Scripture. It's it's talked about in the book of Revelation. But he fell trapped to a basic problem that uh, he failed to recognize as he looked at the Scriptures. And I do believe that his problem with hell, and we're going to look at that later on in this message, but his problem with that uh, made him susceptible to missing and to changing things that were in Scripture because he wanted to. This was his motivation, to find something different in the Bible. So he was looking for a way to do that. But he, he uh, attempted to predict something that Jesus made clear would be impossible to predict. <laughs> it's found in the Scriptures. Jesus said, you can't predict the second coming. You can't predict when the end of times will be. And yet, um, and yet Russell believed he could. He, he, um, he got trapped in a line of thinking where he thought he could do that. The, uh, there's a book called The World's, Most, uh, the World's Worst Predictions, um, and it lists some of history's all-time prophetic goof-ups. One of them, King George II, said in 1773 that American colonies had little stomach for revolution. Got that wrong. An official uh, of the White Star Line, speaking for the firm's newly built flagship, the Titanic, launched in 1912, you know this one, famously said that the ship was unsinkable. Once again, we know he got that wrong. 1939, the New York Times said the problem with TV was that people had to glue their eyes to a screen and that the average American wouldn't have time for it. 
What they didn't know is we'd carry around stupid little TVs in our pockets one day and be glued to that. Okay, an English uh, astronomy professor once said in the early 19th century that air travel at high speeds would be impossible because passengers would suffocate. Okay, so we've gotten it wrong many times uh, in our world. Matthew Chapter 24, verse 36, Jesus said this. After speaking about the end of times, his disciples said, Jesus, tell us what's going to happen. You know, is the kingdom of God going to come? How is this going to work? He gave them an explanation, a description, a lot of information. And at the end of it, he said, or in the middle of it, he kind of said this. However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the son himself. Only the father knows. So Charles Russell could have understood that to predict the return of Christ, the end of the world, would be something not possible. But of course, he adjusted and changed his view of Jesus, right? And so he made it possible for for, uh, himself as a pastor and a preacher to change things, to adjust things, to give different information. Interestingly enough, uh, though Charles Russell predicted the return of Christ and other things and Return, uh, the, the setup of the millennial kingdom, it survived his false predictions. Jehovah's Witness obviously continues to this day, and uh, it's fairly strong. I think they claim somewhere over 9 million followers worldwide. It's a very diverse uh, religion. It's one of the most diverse. They don't really have um, a group of you know, ethnic uh, folks that from any one ethnicity. It's very spread out. Um, it's very diverse, and it's all over the world. Jehovah's Witnesses consider themselves to be Christians, but not Protestants, obviously, even though they reject the doctrine of the Trinity. And this is a theme the Mormonism does as well. It's interesting that if you get off on one of the key doctrines or teachings or beliefs that we hold as a church that the Scripture teaches, all of a sudden it makes you susceptible to walk into areas of error. And, uh, and certainly Jehovah's Witness and with Charles Russell did that, didn't held to the Trinity, didn't hold that Jesus was divine. They believe that the Holy Spirit is an active force, not a person. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is God's only direct creation. He is the firstborn of all creation, right? Which the scripture says. But again, if you don't understand the context and the teachings about Jesus, you can get that wrong in error. And, and they certainly do. Um, they believe, again, that he is created. They believe Jesus lived in heaven before coming to earth. And after his death, the resurrection, he returned to heaven. In order to test Jehovah's Witness teaching, we're going to look at a couple of key things here. And one of them is, we're going to answer this question. Is Jesus 100% God and a member of the Trinity? Is that true of him? Certainly was a core to the early church's understanding of Jesus, right? Is that right? Is it correct? Can we find the evidence for that? Well, we can look in the New Testament. It's very easy to do. It's actually um, all over the place. But it, one of the key scriptures, and you need to know this, you run into somebody that doesn't believe that Jesus was divine. There's a couple of key scriptures you can go to. First one's John chapter 1, verse 1, where the apostle says this, In the beginning, the Word, and that's capitalized W, it's referring to Jesus. In the beginning, the Word already existed. In the beginning, Jesus already existed. The Word was with God. Jesus was with God, referring to the Father. There's a distinction there between the two of them. And lastly, he says, he says this, and the word, or Jesus, was God. So the claim by the apostle, clear, is that Jesus was divine. 
He was in the beginning. He already existed. He existed for eternity, has the same nature and characteristics of God the Father. He was there in the beginning, right? He existed with God the Father, and he was God. John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus makes a claim to deity. He says this in answer to a question that he was given by the Pharisees. Um, They were trying to trip him up and challenge him, and he answered their question this way. He says this, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. Ah, What is that? What's the big deal with with that sentence? Well, here's, here's the big deal with it. When he said, I am, he was making a claim to deity. You'll remember the story of Moses. When Moses saw the burning bush and God appeared to him, he went over and God said, listen, Moses, I need you to do something for me. I need you to go to the Israelites. I need you to go to Pharaoh. I need to get my people out of Egypt. And and Moses said, well, how are they going to believe me? How are they going to know who sent me? And God said, I am that I am. Tell them the I am has sent you. And so uh, God calls himself by this name. So it's very, it's very, very important when Jesus says that he is the I am. It's a claim to deity. That's why the Pharisees tried to stone him. They understood the claim he was making. Sometimes today those things are missed. Certainly, if you don't believe the scriptures and you don't like what the scripture says, you're open to misinterpreting it. Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul gives a description of who Jesus is. Starting in verse 6, he says this, And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him, and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. Verse 8, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that that comes from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world, rather than from Christ. Verse 9, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God in in a human body. Let me read that again. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. Paul says, listen, in Jesus' body was contained all the fullness of the deity of God. In the book of Revelation, there's one other thing that's important for Jehovah's Witnesses to wrestle with and grapple with. They have answers for some of these things. They have a different Bible than than you do, and it's changed it has verses taken out, has things added. And so certainly as they look at their Bible, some of these verses aren't going to be there. But they understand that within the, for the Christian church, those verses do exist. And so to some degree, they try to deal with these things. But there's one um, aspect of how Jesus is treated in the book of Revelation. There's a picture painted. And again, this is apocalyptic literature, right? Revelation, it's full of imagery. And sometimes we have to do some, uh, we have to do some work to understand what those images represent or mean. Um, and yet uh, there's, uh, the picture is painted of the lamb. And the lamb refers to Jesus, again, who has been slaughtered or killed to pay for the sins of the world. And he is in a situation, he's in the throne room, and there is worship that is being ascribed to him. There's a group of figures, creatures that are there. Um, and again, this is all very... Um, uh, there's a lot of image here that represents different things. I'm not going to get into all that right now. What I want to focus in on is how Jesus is being treated in heaven, in the throne room of heaven, by these creatures and by these figures. Verse 13, it says this, And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. They sang. 
Blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped the Lamb. It is difficult, as the Jehovah's Witnesses understand, that worship ascribed to Jesus that should only be attributed and ascribed to God. And if Jesus allowed this worship to be directed at him, he was, uh, he was in error to allow it to continue. If he truly is not God, if he is a created being like we are, then he should have rejected this worship. And it's key to an understanding of who Jesus is. This, this stuff in the scripture, sometimes we've got to dig a little bit. We've got to look. We've got to look into the weeds a little bit and dig down. But the truth is there. And it's obvious. When you don't believe the scriptures, then you can fall into error. Again, the primary motivator for Russell to create his own religion was his distaste for eternal punishment in hell. JWs believe that the kingdom of God is a real government in heaven that will soon replace human governments and accomplish God's purpose here on the earth. They believe that Jesus is the king of God's kingdom in heaven and that he began ruling, as I said, in 1914. A relatively small number of people, 144,000, will be resurrected to live with Jehovah in heaven and rule with Jesus in the kingdom. They believe that God will bring billions back from death by means of a resurrection and that many now living may yet begin to serve God and they too will gain salvation. And so there's a second chance. There's 144,000 who will be saved. They'll serve with God in his kingdom, but God is going to resurrect the rest of humanity and give them an opportunity to trust in him. A second chance. Those that do trust him will spend eternity in heaven. Those that do not are going to... um, cease to exist. There'll be annihilation. And so they don't believe in an eternal existence. Again, Russell struggled with the idea of what Scripture talks about when it talks about hell. And can I assure you that many have struggled over the years, over the millennia, with the idea of hell. It's a hard truth to grasp and to grapple with. It's hard to watch our loved ones die, people that we know and love, and not know where they're at right? Not know if they put their trust in Jesus. And so it's unsettling. It is unsettling. But we've got to understand that the scriptures teach a story, right, of the, of the world and how it began, what is happening in it, and how it will end. And it's, it's all, it all goes together. To discard and to take away pieces of it is to miss the whole thing. And Charles Taz Russell and his uh, invention of a new belief system and a new religion is proof of that. When you get off in one area, all of a sudden you're open to heresy and missing the whole thing. I think this, uh, when it comes to the Bible, I think there's a truth that we need to grapple with. Either you will change the Bible, you'll look for ways to, to explain away the things that it says, or the Bible will change you. You're either going to come to the scriptures as the word of God, you're going to sit underneath them and you're going to seek and make it your life pursuit to understand it, but you're not going to try to disprove it. You're not going to try to change it or you're going to come to it and you're going to say, listen, I don't like that. I don't like that. I wish that wasn't there. And that can't be what God's saying. That can't be how it is. And we, and we begin to try to change it. It's been said that men do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself, but because it contradicts them. I would recommend, uh, there's a, a preacher that, that um, I certainly don't agree with everything that he taught, but Spurgeon was a great preacher uh, in England and, and very prolific and, and did amazing work and very true to the scriptures. He said this, 
I would recommend you either believe God up to the hilt or else not, not to believe at all. Believe, uh, believe this book of God, every letter of it, or else reject it. There's no logical standing place between the two. Be satisfied with nothing less than a faith that swims in the deeps of divine revelation. A faith that paddles about the edge of the water is poor at best. It is, a little, it is little better than a dry land faith and is not, much, uh, not good for much. Listen, to jump in and to seek to understand God, to realize his word is revelation to us, and to drink it in, and to take it in, and say, God, speak to me through your word. I want to know all about you. And, and to understand there's going to be things we don't understand. We don't know why is it this way. God, why is it this way? And we want to know those things. And certainly as adults, uh, that's, a, that's a, a fair thing to ask. And we should seek and pursue an understanding of why God says what he says, why things are the way they are. But we certainly struggle in our day. And each and every one of us are susceptible to saying, man, I just don't like that part of Scripture. I don't like that part of it. That can't be right, you know? can't be true. And it rubs against, the Bible rubs against the culture we live in. And there's beliefs and, and ideas and even dogmas that the world holds to that are, go against what the Bible says. We just got to be careful, guys. We got to walk in a place. And I think to walk in a place saying, listen, I've preached the scriptures and I've preached for a lot of my life. And I've at times said, I don't know why it is this way, but this is the way it is. This is what the Bible says. This is what the teaching is. It's clear. And so we can grow in our understanding. We can piece together and gain the perspective that God has of how the world works and how the scripture works. But guys, let's be honest. As a human race, we need a source of truth outside of ourselves. Come on, man. Look, look at the atrocities. Look at the things that have been done, that the human race has done, that we're all capable of. We need a source of truth. We need a, a force, uh, an accountability to something greater than ourselves. And, the, the, and that force, that person found in uh, the person of Jesus, right? A representative of God coming as God in the flesh provided us with an unchanging text, <clears throat> an objective source of truth. So we can see it, we can study it, we can read it, and it needs to be unchanging. Certainly, we change how we understand things. There's different ideas that pop up from time to time. Let's be careful that we come to God's word with a reverence, with an understanding. It's the scriptures, it's the words of God, and we need to sit underneath it to seek to understand it. Well, what will happen after Jesus returns? And when will that occur? These are central themes to the Jehovah's Witness belief. So we must examine their teachings on the end times. We've got to look at what uh, Russell said would happen when Jesus came back. He touches on and uses things that are found in scripture. The millennial kingdom is there. The second coming of Jesus is in Scripture. And so he uses these things that are truth, right? They're there. But his description of them and how they will unfold is false. We need, to, we need to look into that. One of the leaders who influenced Russell to begin to try to predict the return of Jesus was William Miller. Mentioned him already. He was a key individual in the Adventist movement of the 19th century. After 14 years of studying the Bible, William Miller, this individual, came, became convinced that Christ would return in 1843. When Miller announced April 3rd was the day, some disciples who followed him went to the mountaintops, hoping uh, for a head start to heaven. Others were in graveyards planning to ascend in reunion with their departed loved ones. 
Philadelphia Society of Ladies clustered together outside of town to avoid entering God's kingdom among the common herd. When April 4th dawned, as usual, these folks were disillusioned. But they took heart. Their leader had predicted a range of dates for Christ's return. So not to worry, there's still a chance that he'll come back a different day. And so they had until March 21st. The devout continued to make ready, but again, they were disappointed. A third date, October 22nd, 1844, was set. It also passed. Predicting the second coming. Come on, in my lifetime. There's Jesus, 88 reasons, what was it? Jesus is going to come back in 1988. I mean, it was a great year. I graduated from high school that year, but uh, Jesus didn't come back. You know, I, I know Russell went to an invisible return, right? That was one way. Listen, um, not to make light of it, but it can get silly when we're working so hard to make something true that isn't, to try to do something that can't be done. More than a fourth of the Bible, guys, is predictive prophecy. A fourth of the Bible, 25%, is predictive prophecy. It's very important that we look at the prophecy in the Scripture, that we study it, that we seek to understand it, because much of the Bible is focused on that, is dedicated to predicting the future. Approximately one-third of it has yet to be fulfilled. So much of it has been fulfilled, but there's a lot of it yet that has not. Both the Old Testament and New Testament are full of promises about the return of Jesus Christ. Over 1,800 references appear in the Old Testament, and 17 Old Testament books give prominence to this theme. Of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, there are more than 300 references to the Lord's return. One out of every 30 verses is dedicated to that. It's an important theme in the Scriptures. 23 of the 27 New Testament books refer to this great event. For every prophecy on the first coming of Christ, there are eight on Christ's second coming. George Sweetie put that together. Listen, um, it's true. Prophecy fills the scriptures. And uh, for some of us, it just seems like a fuzzy, foggy arena that we don't really understand and and aren't that interested in. And yet the truth is that um, this guy, Russell, founded a religion based on predicting the future, when Christ will return. Within Mormonism, there's also that kind of predicting of when Christ will return. There was, it was kind of an excitement around that in the late 1800s. And yet, remind you once again of Jesus' words in Matthew 24, verse 36. However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. So the scriptures, Jesus himself said, you're not going to be able to predict this. And yet Charles Russell attempted to many times, along with others that were part of that movement. We need to be careful that we don't step into these traps, that we understand what the Bible says and what Jesus taught. Well, who are the 144,000? It's another key um, uh, idea within the Jehovah's Witness religion. 144,000, they believe, are those that will truly be saved. They'll reign with Christ. And uh, I think they have a date. They had to be saved before 1935 or something. I mean, they have all these, um, trying to fit all this stuff together because obviously 9 million or more followers and they're not all going to be part of this group. And so some of that motivation drops away. And so um, it gets difficult. And so they, they keep shifting and changing things. In Revelation chapter 7 and 14, the 144,000 are referred to. And these are individuals, again, in the book of Revelation, there's a lot of imagery, there's a lot of things that we need to decipher in order to understand it. But a group of 144,000, it's said that 12,000 will come from each tribe of Israel. 
So who are these individuals? They're real. They're in scripture. They're a part of the story of the end of times. And so we need to have an idea of who they are. And there's been some different teachings on what the 144,000 represent. Who are they? Um, uh, the one that, that uh, I think sounds most convincing, and you, you kind of have to pick a little bit sometimes and do your own study, come to your own determination, but that it's a group of Jewish um, men who are set aside to preach the gospel during the Great Tribulation. And they've been sealed by God, they've been marked by God, and they're protected by God during this season. And they go around in a time of Great Tribulation preaching the gospel, preaching that people would be saved. Some people believe it's, uh, it's, um, it's not literal, 144,000. They won't be Jewish individuals. I read some good arguments on it this week. I've looked at it before. But uh, whatever the case, what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe about it is not in Revelation. It's not what is described there. It's not how it's presented. And so it's important, again, to understand the truth and to have our view of the Scriptures be one where we sit underneath them and we seek to understand what they say, not manipulate them, to be what we want them to be. Um, this is when we get off and in error. Is hell real? Will it be eternal conscious torment? Again, this is unsettling, difficult to look at. But Jesus spoke to this in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. He says this, Then the king will turn to those on his left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. Jesus spoke about a place of torment, of conscious eternal torment. The book of Daniel, which is largely prophecy. Chapter 12, verse 2, Daniel said this, Many of those whose bodies lie dead and buried will rise up, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting disgrace. Again, there's talk of eternity, right? In the Old Testament, Matthew 18, verse 8 says this. So if your hand or foot, Jesus speaking here, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life, eternal life with only one hand or one foot than to be thrown into the eternal fire with both of your hands and feet. Jesus talking about dealing with things that would keep us from God. He's saying, listen, there's eternal conscious existence for you. Where is it going to be? Second Thessalonians, a book written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a group of people who thought Jesus had returned already, and he was assuring them that Jesus had not returned. He deals with a lot of um, end times things and what they should be looking for. In Second uh, Thessalonians 1 verse 9, he says this, they will be separated with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. So again, the teaching in the New Testament and the Old Testament is of an eternal existence, not annihilation. There's been guys in our time, uh, preachers and pastors in our time that have written and have moved in this direction because the idea of hell is unsettling. It's, it's not something we like to look uh, in the face and really grapple with. Some people go, man, what a belief system. You know, it's so manipulative. There's a hell. If you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to hell. And they get really um, sarcastic about it and cynical about it. And I would say to that, well, <laughs> if that's what God was trying to do, it didn't work because most people that I know are not worried about hell. You know, there's this whole, um, there's this whole storyline in our culture. Kids I grew up with, they'd be like, yeah, I'm going to hell when I die, but that's where the party's going to be. You know, they write this whole storyline to it as though it's not something to be concerned with. So if God was trying to manipulate people by saying there's a hell, I would say it, did, it wasn't successful because people aren't as scared of it as they probably should be. They don't really believe in it. And so I don't think that's the case. I think it's the truth. And there is a hell, and it's real, and there's going to be a judgment. And we've got to tell people about it. We've got to be ready for it ourselves. 
The truth is that Jehovah's Witnesses teach a different gospel than the one the Bible teaches. And I read last week, Galatians chapter 1, Paul's stern, stern um, remarks towards anyone who would change the gospel. He says this, let God's curse fall on anyone, including us, or even an angel from heaven who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preach to you. Paul says, don't listen to anybody that comes with a different gospel. Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in the Trinity. They believe that Jesus is God's creation. The Holy Spirit is an impersonal force. They have their own translation of the Bible called New World Translation. It subtracts passages they don't like. It adds passages to support what they believe. They believe that salvation is through faith, yes, and works with an emphasis on works. They don't believe in eternal judgment in hell. They believe in a second chance after death. And then they believe in annihilation. As I said, they believe that 144,000 will be saved and they will reign and rule with Jesus in the kingdom, which was established in 1914. Jesus already returned, but that return was invisible. The scriptures teach this. At Jesus' baptism, Father spoke, Son was present, Holy Spirit descended like a dove. All three members of the Trinity were there, identified as different persons, but unified and united as one God. Might be difficult to understand, but it's clear in the scriptures. The Bible cannot be changed or altered by anyone to fit their beliefs and should have the authority to change our beliefs. Holy Spirit was sent after Jesus and indwells believers with a distinct role and is the distinct person and member of the Trinity. Jesus' death paid for the sin of the world and through him salvation is found by grace through faith. Jesus spoke of the eternal judgment of those who did not put their trust in him and who did not know him. Jesus promised to return physically, not invisibly. Such a claim goes against what Jesus said about his return found in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. We had a little uh, incident out here, side of the building between the highway and the church on Friday night. Got a call about, I think it was around 6.30, by a guy that uh, I met recently. He's on the Minotaire Fire Department. He said, hey, do you know your field's on fire? Not by the church. I said, no, I didn't know that. So um, anyway, very thankful for the Mitchell uh, Volunteer Fire Department that came out and got it under control and fought it so that it didn't cause more damage than it did. But of course, the wind was blowing and, and it swept through pretty quickly. Fire is scary. And that's why I think the imagery of, of eternity separated from God in hell is scary. It is. It should cause us to uh, consider where we stand. There's a story of a group of pioneers who were making their way out uh, to um, homestead some land that was made available by the government. And they were traveling slowly in wagons pulled by oxen. One day they saw off to the west um, a plume of smoke and soon realized a fire was racing towards them. They had no plan of escape. There was a river, but it was miles behind them. There was no way they could get to it. And no one knew what to do. And the group began to panic. But there was one man who took charge. He knew what to do. He said, listen, let's light a fire behind us. That fire began to sweep to the east, blowing with the wind from the west, and it burned a patch of grass out. And then he said, listen, let's get all of our stuff into the middle of that burned area. And so they did. As the fire uh, roared towards them, there was a little girl that cried out in uh, in terror. She said, are you sure we shall not all be burned up? The leader replied, my child, the flames cannot reach us here, for we are standing where the fire has been. The Bible teaches us that Jesus came to the earth, God in the flesh. He walked this earth, revealing to us who God is, loving on us the way God loves on us, and ultimately dying on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin, 
So if we put our trust in what he's done for us, we will not spend eternity separated from him in the fires of hell. We'll spend eternity with him in heaven. That is God's intention. That's his desire for each person that he's created that has walked this earth. I know that that's, his, uh, that's what he wants. And yet, he's made us with the freedom to choose, the ability to choose our destination. And so, thankfully, we can stand where the fire has already burned. We can stand in safety in the work of what Jesus has done for us so that we will not face that judgment that we cannot stand up under. I want to encourage us as a church to continue to be the message it's true that uh, Jehovah's Witnesses might be difficult to reach, might be hard to get through to them, um, but we should pray for the eyes of our Je- Jehovah's Witness friends to be opened. There's a, a gentleman here who came out of Jehovah's Witness. He grew up for a time. His mom got into it, and his family was into it, and we were talking, and I said, man, how do you approach uh, Jehovah's Witness? How do you reach out to them, and what should you do? Just love on them, try to help them, and he said, Pastor, really, there's not a lot you can do. Their church is teaches them to not have anything to do with um, people that aren't a part of their church. I thought of the story in the New Testament where the disciples were trying to cast out a demon and they couldn't do it and all of a sudden Jesus shows up and they said, Jesus, would you help us? And he casts it out and they say, why couldn't we do it? And Jesus says, listen, some, some uh, demons, this kind, can, can be cast only out uh, or can be cast out only by prayer. I think we should be praying. We should lead with prayer. We should work to pray. And remember that even for those we think are hopeless, there's no chance. They're so far away. God can never get a hold of their heart. There is hope. God continues to tell us to walk in confidence and certainty and continue to reach out to love and to care about the people around us. There was a group known as the Order of the Mustard Seed. It was founded by Count Zinzendorf. And uh, he had three guiding principles. To be kind to all people. Seek their, welf- seek their welfare and win them to Christ. Let's remember that winning an argument isn't really the goal. Winning someone to Christ is the goal. And if that requires praying, if that requires loving on and helping and serving, then that's what we do. But let's continue to be the message. Let's know where the people around us are coming from, what they believe, what they're caught in. But more than that, let's understand their struggles and their pain and uh, the things that bother them and are weighing heavy on their heart. Um, I think that's really where God wants us, is living in the world in such a way that we represent Jesus. We're the hands and feet of Jesus to the world around us. And guys, if we do that, then we're going to see people come to Jesus that we didn't think there was ever a chance that they could. God, thank you so much for placing us here in this season, in this time, to be your representatives, to be ambassadors for you, God, I just pray that you would continue to grow us, uh, grow our hearts for the people around us. Fill us with love and concern as you have for those around us um, who are caught in different belief systems, who have believed things that aren't true. Whether that's people in the world that don't believe in God and believe that hell's where the party's going to be, or whether it's people that believe that um, uh, in what the Jehovah's Witness Church teaches. Father, I just pray that you would help us to consistently represent you, to be a force for good, a force for you in this community. God, help us during a season of struggle to love on each other and then in turn be able to love on the world around us. God, thanks for calling us to be alive at such a time as this, to represent you and to be following you as we are today. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.